in just a few hours, our church will meet again for the first time in months. Uh, some of you are still a little hesitant about coming out, and that's okay, but this is why I am preaching to you directly. During the 12-week COVID period in which we were not able to gather, there were times in which I found it hard to pray. I mean by that, I could go through the motions, but, it, but I wasn't really entering in. It felt stale, mechanical, cold. I felt like I was living in a fog. I was functioning, marking things off my to-do list, but something wasn't right. Everything had lost purpose. Maybe some of you have experienced that. Maybe you're in the middle of it now. You struggle to carry on a meaningful conversation with other humans, much less with the God of the universe. An overshadowing haze keeps you from praying. Have you ever been so angry you couldn't pray? Every time you tried, you kept replaying the argument and what you wished you would have said, or telescoping into the future about what you will say if given the opportunity. It's hard to approach God with a red face and clenched teeth. Anger prevents you from praying. Now, I could backtrack and deal with the issues that cause those situations, but frankly, they are there. And we are there. So what are some steps forward now? Well, we find help in the text. Historical help, biblical help, and practical help. We'll take them one at a time. First, the historical. Recognize that hurtful and horrible things may happen to you, and it could squelch your desire to pray. Now, we're going to spend three weeks in this wonderful passage because of the shortened services. But even with those three weeks, we could never exhaust its riches. Daniel 9 is a prayer. Daniel's heartfelt prayer. And there's, a, there's pre-prayer material, there's prayer material, and then there's post-prayer material. And that's how we would divide the chapter up over these three weeks. We're going to do the pre-prayer today. So let me use this chart to catch you up on where we are in the study. We'll start at the bottom. The genre of the first six chapters is narrative. The last six chapters is apocalyptic. The first six show Daniel and friends at home in Babylon. And the final six show Daniel and friends coming home from Babylon. Now move up to the language. Notice we're leaving Aramaic and we're now in Hebrew. The most likely reason for the switch is that the Aramaic chapters 2 through 7, they stress God's universal rule over the nations, which could best be communicated to Israel and the nations in Aramaic, the international language. Chapters 8 through 12, by contrast, focus more on Israel and Jerusalem, which could best be communicated to Israel in their heart language, Hebrew. Chapters 1 through 6 are chronological, and chapters 7 through 12 fill in the gaps of that chronology. Notice chapter 9, verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. Now, verse 1 is a chronological marker. Let's view our chart and, and work our way towards the first year of Darius. Between the age of 12 and 15, Nebuchadnezzar 
when Daniel was 12 or 15, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians attacked Jerusalem and kidnapped, most historians agree, somewhere in the neighborhood of 60 young teenage boys. They were forced to walk 900 miles, hungry, exhausted, and fearful. These young men were victims of human trafficking. Among that number, dragged off in chains to a foreign land, was Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Their mothers screaming, don't take my boy, and the boy screaming, don't take me away from home. They enter a three-year crash course to train them to lead the next group of POWs coming in. The course consisted of isolation, indoctrination, and castration. At the end of the three-year period, King Nebi has a dream. A dream about a scary monster. No wise man could interpret it except Daniel the apprentice. In chapter 3, we lose track of Daniel and the emphasis is on his three friends being thrown into the fire. King Nebi may very well have promoted Daniel, but here he tried to kill his three friends. Now remember, it took 20 years for the complete fall of Jerusalem. And it happened in three stages. The first siege, Daniel and his three friends were taking. That's chapter 1. The second siege, 10,000 captives, including Ezekiel, are taken. That's chapters between chapter 2 and 3. The third siege, the poor and the fringes of society were taken, and that's when they eventually burned the city down and burned the temple. This may have been shortly after chapter 3 or possibly just before chapter 3. In chapter 4, King Nebi is flourishing over the entire planet, building skyscrapers, he's controlling the world, but he cannot control his dreams. He has another one about a tree being cut down. Daniel is around 50 years old here, and he interprets the dream for the king. King Nebi eventually dies, and Daniel is forgotten about and living in a senior living center. After lots of jockeying for position, Belshazzar takes the throne, and there is handwriting on the wall. No one knows what it means, so they call Daniel to come. He, he takes a while. He's walking with a cane. Eventually, he interprets the writing. Babylon will be overthrown. And the Medo-Persian Empire will take control. Hours later, it happened. And that's where you see the change of the world empire on the chart. And Darius, the first year of his reign. Now let's review what happened to Daniel up until the fifth chapter of this book. He was kidnapped as a young teen. Forced to walk 900 miles to Babylon. He was castrated. Possibly saw his parents murdered. Forced to work a white-collar job, white-collar labor. Uh, he worked in the king's palace. He watched his people systematically beaten, raped, and carried off in cages. If I am 85-year-old Daniel in chapter 9, I'm saying I hate Babylon. I hate the Babylonians. I hate their view of me. I hate their constant injustice. I hate their blindness. I hate their evil. I hate their pain that they have caused me. I hate that God put me in Babylon. I hate it so much, I can't even pray to him. Now allow me to pose a question. Did God make, us make a mistake putting Daniel in Babylon? Let me ask another equally puzzling question. Did God make a mistake putting you in the United States in 2020? 
Could the, could the very thing that is causing you to stop praying be the very thing that should cause you to start praying? Babylon is God's scalpel. He turned the evil nation into his surgeon. You can hate King Nebi, but you can't deny that King Nebi reigns because God permitted it. Babylon is the ape of God. The ape will persecute, the ape will beat, the ape will kill, but you must never forget that the ape is on a leash held by an omnipotent and loving God. I want you to, at home, mentally summarize in one word what is causing you frustration and anger in our country. And I want you to keep that one word in your mind. It could be racism. It could be riots. It could be Democrats. It could be Republicans. It could be injustice. It could be entitlement. It could be a system. I don't know what your word is, but you do. And it's really having a detrimental effect on your prayer life, and, and you know it. Now, I want you to put your word in this blank. Blank is on God's leash. Racism is on God's leash. Riots are on God's leash. Democrats and Republicans are on God's leash. Injustice is on God's leash. Don't become a hermit. Don't become discouraged. Don't become embittered. You were born for times like this. You were born for this tension. God has placed you here historically for a purpose. And that purpose may be to blow your mind by revealing that God has a leash. The last three months, not the last week, the last three months have been pretty awful. Let's be blunt. Really divided, really angry, really loud, really terrible. You know what my favorite part of the last three months have been? Talking to you, our church members, and realizing that chaos is everywhere around you. But you're still ruled by the peace of God. When Daniel writes verse 1, he's not in the Babylonian Empire any longer. He's in the Medo-Persian Empire. But that's not any better. In a very short time, he will find out that God doesn't just have Babylonian apes on a leash. He also has Medo-Persian lions on a leash. You need to analyze this time in the U.S. like you are looking back on it and reviewing history. Summarize it in a sentence. You could use the words from verse 1. In the year of so-and-so's reign, when COVID wrecked our country, when tensions have never been higher, when hurtful and horrible things are happening, God is teaching His people about His leash. Now we looked at it through the historical lens. Let's now go through the biblical lens. Biblical. Number two. The word of God is the only thing that will sustain you in troubling days. Notice chapter 9 verse 2. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of the years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. So here we have Daniel in his daily devo time, his quiet time. 
he opens the scroll of Jeremiah. Now, in movies, it's unfolded like this. But in ancient times, it was unfolded like this. And it had writing on the front and on the back. We learn a lot about how to use Scripture by observing how those in Scripture used Scripture that was available to them. Daniel spent his whole life studying what? Well, I love the definite article in the Hebrew here, the books. <laughs> the books. You want to know how important the Bible was to Daniel? God had revealed revelations to Daniel, and yet Daniel is still studying Scripture. Daniel had heard the audible voice of God, but still valued the written voice of God. Daniel's desire amid his troubled times was for his heart and mind to be informed by the Scripture. Now, he only had portions of the Old Testament, but he cherished those portions he had. According to verse 2, for Daniel, today's reading is in Jeremiah. And it was written more than a generation, maybe two generations before. This was not Daniel's first time through the book of Jeremiah. But for the first time, this portion came alive to him during his troubled days. Now we know that he had to be reading either Jeremiah 25 or Jeremiah 29. Likely both. Both are fascinating. So, so Daniel's reading along and he reads this. Because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. I like to translate it here, my ape. And I will bring him against this land and its inhabitants. I will devote him to destruction and make you a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste. So as Daniel's reading, he knows what he's going through. This exile was predicted before it ever happened. And then he reads, When 70 years are completed for Babylon... I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. <laughs> Wait a minute. This is like jumping off the page at Daniel. How many years will they be in exile? Seventy. Daniel pulls out his calculator, and he wants to know how much longer this deportation will last. But the, la but the math is, is not easy. Do you start the time at the first siege, or the second siege, or the third siege? Remember, there were 20 years between the first and third siege. Historians say by the time Daniel reads this prophecy, he's been in Babylon for at least 68 years. So Daniel could be back home in two years, or maybe another 22 years, if the count started at the last siege. Now let's stop here for application. When you have trouble understanding the times, go to the Bible. Whether you're filled with anger or fear, go to the Bible. We even have more revelation than Daniel did. We have a complete Bible. The Bible has lips. And when you open it, it speaks 
Recently, I did a little reading on the horrible institution of slavery that took place in our country. And I read this. The slaves wanted to be taught to read because they wanted to read the talking book. The same is true for this slave in Babylon. When he needed steadying, he opened the talking book. Daniel was seeking to have his mind informed and his heart dominated by whatever God had said about his current situation. Like Daniel, when you're struggling to hold on to life, open the Bible and hold on to the promises of God. So we have a historical lens, then we have a biblical lens, and then lastly we have a a practical lens. The Word of God will rekindle your prayer life. Now if you were like me, and and you were struggling to pray, or or you're currently struggling to pray, you're, you're currently struggling to truly enter into the presence of God with passion and hunger, then you need the Bible. Whether it's a fog or anger keeping you from praying, the solution is the living word. Daniel writes in verse 3, Then I turned. Wait a minute. When did he turn? After reading God's word. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Friends, let your prayers flow From your study of the scripture. Apart from the word of God. Your prayers will find their way. Into shallow and meaningless verbiage. Ask yourself some questions. Do I struggle to pray as I ought. Because I do not know scripture as I should. Do I fail to approach my God well. Because I do not soak in his word well. Only as we deepen our understanding of God as revealed in the Bible. Will our praying become richer and more passionate. Without the Bible and our prayers. They will be just as worldly as the church we are trying to free from worldliness. You can't have a fat prayer life. And a skinny Bible reading life. Daniel moves from reading scripture to prayer. The word of God is is controlling and framing his prayer life. See, the Bible naturally drives you to your knees. George Mueller said that for years he tried to pray without starting with the Bible in the morning. And inevitably his mind wandered. Then he started with the book. And turned the book into prayer as he read. And for 40 years he experienced a rich prayer life. John Piper says it like this. Where the mind isn't brimming with the Bible. The heart is not generally brimming with prayer. Now there are things mentioned here in the text. Especially verse 3 that are cultural. You don't have to do them every time in order to have a vibrant prayer life. What is Daniel doing? First, he's wearing sackcloth. That's a rough material made of animal skins. It was a real irritant to the skin. Then he's pouring ashes. Pouring ashes over his head. And then then he's fasting. Now, I don't think this one is merely that culture. 
although it is foreign to our culture because we don't do fasting. We Americans invented Sam's Club. We buy food by the pallet. We can even order food and have it delivered to us so we don't have to burn the calories to pick it up. We tend to eat our way through life. But these are uh, three things that are accompanying Daniel's prayer. Now, you'll find other unusual things accompanying prayer in the Bible, like shaving the head, Job 1, smiting the chest, Luke 18, crying, 1 Samuel 1, and many other places, tearing garments, groaning, on and on. Do you remember in the New Testament, Jesus would mock the Pharisees for such outward expressions. But Daniel's self-denial was a genuine expression of the devotion of his heart. Now let's come in and land this plane. Daniel's exile prayer, though amazing, didn't bring the exiles home. But 500 years later, another would open the scroll of Jeremiah, consistently echo it in his preaching, and this one prayed. No sackcloth and ashes or fasting, but another unusual occurrence accompanied his prayer. Sweating, drops of blood. He prayed, Father, not my will, but thine be done. That is the prayer that ultimately brings all sinful exiles to their eternal home. Honestly, I would have never chosen Daniel for the COVID period or the days coming out of COVID. It's really difficult to do an apocalyptic book when you're, you're not in person. But I'm glad we're here because it helps us to develop a biblical worldview. And here's what I want you to see. God holds sinful depravity back on a leash. And you can bet every dollar you got, there is not an evil that exists that can rip the leash out of God's hand. Not Babylonian apes or Medo-Persian lions, not American donkeys or American elephants. Not the vilest evil. God has never released his grip on the leash. And he never will. He's never dropped the leash. Or has he? One bright Friday morning, people gathered for a crucifixion. Like dogs, they savagely tore into the skin of Jesus Christ. They beat him until he was unrecognizable as a human being. Strung him up on a cross. At noon, the earth grew dark for three hours. The ground shook. And it was at that moment... That God dropped his leash. Friends, I know what you're saying. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking that God dropped the leash and allowed the wrath of man to attack Jesus. Look at how much he was beaten physically. It was more than that. God dropped the leash and it wasn't the wrath of man that attacked Jesus. It was the wrath of God. The one restraining the wrath unleashed his wrath for sin onto Jesus Christ. God should have dropped the leash and came after you. But there is a substitute. 
Dear friend, this is the gospel. And I know that some of you are facing some scary things. But I want you to know, whatever that beast is, it's on God's leash. And ultimately, he unleashed the only thing that could truly and forever destroy you. He released that on his dear son, Jesus Christ. Friends, you have hope here because Jesus Christ took the penalty for your sin and three days later rose from the grave victorious. Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky and are a short drive from Fort Campbell and Hopkinsville, Kentucky as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.